to to argue that we should or could leave behind a literal understanding of the virgin birth on the basis of a theology of the incarnation is to say that Jesus in the incarnation experiences human life in the same way that we do. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Uh, Today's topic is going to be uncomfortable and going to stretch you a little bit, uh, but have an open mind. I had the privilege of, of having a conversation with Dr. Kyle Roberts about his new book titled A Complicated Pregnancy, Whether Mary Was a Virgin and Why It Matters. Uh, In this, we talk about kind of how this book came to be, kind of that story in Kyle's faith and journey about what led him to research this topic, a topic that I don't know many Christians think about much. We kind of take it for granted. Uh, So a little bit of a backdrop about Kyle Kyle is the Schilling Professor of Public Theology in Church and Economic Life at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. Roberts published essays on Kierkegaard and modern theology and has recently completed and co-authored a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, At United, Roberts teaches public theology, Christian ethics, historical theology, which is huge because the the history in the Bible is, is, is just so important. And can't be passed over. So I'll stop talking. Let's get into this. So um, welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Kyle Roberts from United Theological Seminary in the Twin Cities. In that's in Minnesota, correct, Kyle? That's correct. Awesome. Um, well, I appreciate you very much being here, taking time out of your schedule. I'm sure um, your semester's wrapping up, so I, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to, to come on. No problem. I always enjoy talking about my book. So. Yeah, yeah. Is this, um, Thanks for having me. The book in, in question is, uh, is called A Complicated Pregnancy, Whether Mary Was a Virgin and Why It Matters, which is quite the long subtitle. But um, <laughs> is, this, is this your first book? I don't believe that it is, correct? Correct. I wrote a book a few years back on Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, and connection to uh, the contemporary relevance for the church called Emerging Prophet, Kierkegaard and the Postmodern People of God. And I've also recently completed a commentary, co-authored commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. So that'll be coming out next September. So you can have me back on then if you'd like. Absolutely. Yeah, I will. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll set that date before we let you go today. Um, for right. those that are unfamiliar with you, can you just briefly start with just a bit about yourself, kind of how you came to the faith and, and, and how you came to be doing the work that you do today? Sure. So um, I was a pastor's kid, and uh, my dad was a pastor. My granddad was a pastor, um, very, you know, more conservative, Southern Baptist upbringing, um, went to evangelical seminaries for my theological degrees taught at an evangelical seminary in Minnesota for about nine years. It was my first full-time teaching job. Over the years, particularly in in those years of teaching and researching, my theology started to change a bit and become more more progressive. I talk about that at the beginning of the book a little bit. So I was on a theological journey and, um, you know, and things unrelated necessarily to the question of whether Mary was a virgin. Um, but connected, same time in other ways, biblical authority, meaning of salvation, who Jesus was and is for us, and all this, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so I switched to United, started teaching at United about four years ago, which is an ecumenical, progressive, progressive or liberal uh, mainline Protestant seminary, so a very different context, but a really good place to explore a question like this. And so that came about. I'd written a blog post about uh, three years ago on the qu- on this question. Ended up taking a different back then. I took a different conclusion, more traditional conclusion to the question, and uh, then got a contract to write a book book on the on the topic. In the midst of researching for that book, 
I my mind started to change on this on the subject, realized the book was going to be very different than what I intended, which after a little bit of conversation, the editor was okay with. And so here we are. Um, the book is a product of of a twist and turn in my own kind of theological and faith journey. Um, and I, you know, I let a lot of that story out kind of here and there throughout throughout the book. Yeah. So what would you then say is, I guess in your mind, a progressive but still Protestant Christian? Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's a huge question. Progressive Protestant Christian. Well, for one thing, to be Protestant means to be always reforming. Um, that's the spirit of the Protestant Reformation that received theologies, received doctrines, while while important, um, are always open to revision in light of of what Scripture, what we may discover Scripture to actually be saying or teaching. Um, so I think that what I've done is a very Protestant kind of thing to do, and that is to look to look at a theological topic or loci or, you know, even cherished uh, theological phrase like born of the Virgin uh, Mary and and reconsider it in light of contemporary knowledge, science, bio, you know, biology and history, historical knowledge, but also just the diversity of Scripture itself yeah. on the topic and the theological concept of the Incarnation. So I think to be a Protestant Christian is to be open to reevaluating kind of received theologies while not dismissing the tradition you know, whimsically or or arbitrarily, but uh, to ultimately to, uh, if I can just refer to Kierkegaard, one of my theological heroes, it's to follow Christ, not a doctrine. Yeah. And so it's, to, it's following a living person. Yeah. 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 That's discipleship. Yeah. And that's hard. I can tell you personally, especially after starting this, but it's one of the reasons I started this podcast is I, I quickly found out if you kick if you kick someone's pillars of whatever their personal faith is, people get mad fast. Oh yeah. Um and yep. this this book is definitely on that. Um I don't know what I was expecting going into reading it, and I still don't know where I'm at just recently finishing it. But mm-hmm. I will say I it it was not what I was expected. Uh, and I, I greatly enjoyed it. So um, the the topic at hand of discussing Mary's virginity or, or the incarnation of Christ, especially this close to Christmas, um, is definitely something that people would question whether or not they could say at church. So uh, you referenced your blog post, and, and I did read that um, from a few years ago. What mm-hmm. Was that just a whim? Was that a, a group effort of guys, well, we need to get together, we need to talk about this, it's important? Or was it just a... This is something rattling around in my head. What what made you actually start down the conversation to begin with? Yeah, that was a, a, a conversation and dialogue that was initiated by the, uh, the channel manager, the progressive Christian channel manager of Pathios, where I, I blog. And she at the time was the manager. And she said, hey, let's let's have these four people, you four people, um, write different perspectives, different takes on the Christmas story. And so we all kind of came up with our different opening question and then responded to each other's, um, to, to each other's original posts. So I, I don't recall exactly what prompted this particular question for me. Yeah. Um, but it was one of those things that, you know, I haven't looked at this closely before. Uh, I, it's just something I'd always assumed and not reflected upon theologically or, you know, historically, so on. So I started to dig into it, and and uh, the questions that emerged I thought were very profound. Um, and in the context of that one post, I wasn't able to explore them as deeply as I wanted to, which then, you know, led to the, the book project. Yeah. But Yeah, I find it yeah. odd, and you said it a minute ago, that, you know, you went through seminary, raised as a pastor's kid, you're trained to teach, and it isn't until you start teaching that you begin to, I guess— rethink things. I find it odd that, that nowhere in seminary, and I, and I have other friends that have been in seminary and they, they echo the same thing that mm. I, you know, you just, you wait until you're on the other end and you're like, why didn't we talk about this 10 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> this would have been helpful. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
But um, now, of course, that's not true for for a lot of people who go to seminary and more liberal liberal seminaries where they do encounter a lot of these sorts of questions and rethinking things. And yeah. it just happened to be the ones I went to for whatever reasons. You know, of course, we explored different kinds of questions, but this wasn't one that that was open to investigation, at least not from a, you know, we can actually, we can actually rethink this. So Sure. So, so to get to the matter at hand, um, uh, what I've been not trying to avoid, but, but afraid to start down the road of is, so you talk a lot about uh, Mary, Jesus, and, and, and even Mary and other cultures in your book. Um, and so I want to try to ride the line of just enough information that, that that people go out and, and get the book. So that's kind of my intention here. So um, what what is the idea of a virgin birth really intended, I guess, in your view, to mean? Yeah, and so we first have to distinguish between a virgin birth and a virginal conception. And uh, because the virgin birth came to mean something a little bit distinctive in the early church tradition where the birth or the delivery of the baby was presumed, assumed by many theologians to be virginal, meaning that Mary remains biologically a virgin. Her, her hymen is, is un, un, untouched, mm-hmm. you know, unviolated through the birth. She, she is a perpetual virgin, um, those kinds of things. And so the virgin birth, uh, took on a different significance or an added significance to the virginal conception. And that's this idea that the Holy Spirit um, does whatever the Spirit does in Mary to, uh, to make her pregnant, pregnant, to give life to this baby Jesus, this zygote, which would become Jesus of Nazareth. So the conception was assumed to be miraculous, supernatural, um, signified by the fact that Mary had not had sexual relations before she became pregnant. And so the the two biblical accounts of Matthew and Luke, they don't really dwell on the significance of Mary's virginity other than a sort of to say, to, to signal that God did something special and miraculous, that there was an interruption of history and of nature and the biology by God to bring about the entrance of the Messiah, you know, the, the, of the Christ into history in this, in this remarkable way. Um, it really wasn't about, in the Gospels, as far as I can see or tell, it's not really about Mary's sexual purity. It's about God's, God's power and God's presence to his people. Um, in the early church tradition, after biblical accounts. We then have this development where Mary's sexuality or sexual purity specifically, it becomes the thing that's really highlighted in the story. And then she is this paragon of paragon of virtue, paragon of purity, the ideal, you know, to which all Christians should aspire. Mm-hmm. And of course we have Jesus too playing that role um, for men. And to, and to some extent, Joseph also, but um, but yeah, that, that it that there are layers and layers of meaning that get added on to the original biblical accounts, the infancy gospels, and what we get handed then looks very different from what's actually there in the original gospel texts. Yeah, I, I found that fascinating, just from a just just from a historical theological perspective to see how doctrine develops changes morphs and layers of meaning get added and added and added over time which at some point you go okay wait a minute <laughs> um let's let's look at this again and rethink what's actually going on yeah and there seems to be a lot of that especially in today's day and age it it's odd that that I feel like I'm not the only person having these questions. It seems to be so many people, and I think research from you know Pew and other organizations embraces that. That I'm not the minority. Um, I just happen to have a yes. laptop, but um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So that purity theme. I mean, that's still the that's still the bar today. It seems like um, you know, for everything, the you know, your women stay this way because that's the way it needs to be. 
Um, you, and, and, and I'm fine with that, especially cause I have two daughters and, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine <laughs> with that for, as a father, but, um, yeah, sure. But, but yeah, so it's you, you, you make a case that, that the, the early church has for some reason sanitized the, the aspect of the, the actual birth. Um, and I read through those a little bit. I'd like you to talk on a little bit cause I'm still slightly confused in the reason for the sanitation. But mm-hmm. I also think being that I was present for all three of my children, there is a lot of brokenness, but also a lot of beauty when those babies come out. And maybe I'm biased cause I was technically the first person before my wife to see them, but, but I don't feel like I'm biased. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of glory in that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, my first chapter is called beautiful blood and it's, it's my own experience of, being there in the delivery room and like having an aversion to blood myself, but no problem with it <laughs> right there when the baby was born. And because it is, you know, you see it and you see it all in a very different light through the, the splendor, the wonder, the joy of, of this child coming into the world. That's your own. And so that early, there was an, this early debate about the, whether Jesus as a baby when he was born actually experienced kind of experienced the blood of the birth, experienced the biological messiness, so to speak, of 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 the delivery. And some theologians just really thought that there's no way Mary would have experienced pain. Um there's no way Jesus would have you know, as a baby been sullied by biological fluids, um, it would have been this sort of pure, miraculous, supernatural, like appearing of Jesus outside, you know, like, like a a smooth transition (laughs) that uh, Jesus was protected. And what, from, from biology, and what I argue there is that that's a very Gnostic kind of Gnostic or docetic um, uh, a tendency, which is to say that the body is inherently flawed. The human body is kind of thoroughly, deeply sinful, and that God would not have been sullied by the disgusting elements of the human body. So there's probably some psychology of disgust going on there, you know, once you talk about a bit, but also just a theology that was sort of carryover from kind of Greek philosophical dualism, which elevates spirit over body. Mm-hmm. And if God is spirit, then the the worst parts of the body must have evaded him. And um, despite themselves, you know, the early church theologians were not, didn't want to be docetic. They wanted to critique that kind of perspective. Right. But I, I think they ended up falling in the same traps that that uh, they accused others of of falling into, and uh, so it's hard to say what all the reasons for that are. And then you've got Augustine's view of the inter- intertwining of sex and sin, and so Jesus surely would not have been born through conceived through human sexuality, because then Jesus would have had transmitted to him the the you know the original sin, which descended all the way from Adam and Eve through procreation. And yeah. so sex and sin were all tied up and the body was uh, inherently flawed. And so you've got the sanitized delivery and then a spiritualized conception. Huh. But that's a short way of putting a yeah. long, complicated story. The uh, So it, it, when you reference Augustine, and and I will say my literal inerrantist versions of the Bible, and I I went full disclosure. I went to Liberty at one point, and and that is gone. And and so I feel like mm. once I no longer and I no longer read the scriptures that way. But if you read Genesis not as six days and everything is so literal, it, read it more as I think the authors intended it to be read. I, I don't see how. Uh, obviously, Augustine's an extremely smart guy. So I don't see how they can come to that conclusion. Was, is there a vested self-interest in them doing that for the, the time in, in history that they lived in? In general, are you thinking of Augustine's 
um, geology just, of original sin. In yeah, particular. just original sin. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there you do see the the way that personal experience shapes theological and biblical interpretation. Augustine himself, you know, kind of lived a fairly wild party life, let's say, before he, his conversion to Christianity, and still, you know, struggled with a lot of guilt over that and uh, kind of a deep deep sense, emotional sense of his own depravity. And so he may have read a lot of that into his view of human nature and the soul um, and, and all of that. So you, you do see how personal context and experience can shape the things you emphasize. But he also had a, he was working with a faulty translation of Romans 5, which led him to interpret the the spreading of sin, um, uh, to, you know, to to all men, uh, all people, um, in a way that the the actual correct translation, more accurate uh, translation, would not have resulted in the same conclusion. And so, again, that that little piece, that bit, is there in the book as well. But um, but yeah, it, he was brilliant. He was obviously brilliant, and you know, it's. It's amazing to read his work and and just how prolific he was and how um, thoughtful so much of his theology was. But it's also a good reminder that we are all influenced by our context and our worldviews and yeah, our bias. and our experience. Yeah, and our bias. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, I said no it one's with, perfect with a guy the other day. I think I read it from Walter Brueggemann, and I'll probably have to edit this out because I feel like I've said it often. Is uh, I, I read somewhere that he wrote that we all read scripture with our, our vested self-interest at hand. Like there's not a way to not do that. Um, and we just yeah. have to be able to check that. So um, sure. the you talk a little bit about curse theology, and that is something that I had never heard before reading it. Can you, can you explain what you mean a bit by that? And you were referencing, I think, from memory, a guy named Am, Ambrose or Ambrose. Father, father, somebody. Um, can you go through that a little bit? Cursed theology, um, or, like or reverse. Uh, I think what you said is it's it's. It, oh, reverse so, the curse. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Reverse the curse. Yeah. So if if the curse of the fall, uh, the for the sins of Adam and Eve in the garden. So you've got the fall. They. They, you know, listen to the serpent, they disobey God. And then there's this curse that in Genesis 3, God um, lays out for them. And one of those curses is, of course, that the man will, uh, and his descendants will struggle to to reap produce from the soil and, you know, will essentially struggle with, with work and... Um, and harvesting food, and you know that's the gist of it. And then the woman will—the curse of the woman is, is uh, the pain of childbirth. So this is, I guess, another answer to your earlier question: why, why early theologians were averse to the to Jesus having gone through the pain, ha- having gone through a normal biological birth or delivery, is that that the idea here in the reverse of the curse theology is that the curse of Adam and Eve, um, frustration with produce and the land and for women, the pain of childbirth gets reversed with G with Mary and with Jesus. And so you have this restoration. Um, you, you've got Jesus bringing redemption to the world, to humanity, overcoming the effects of sin, you know, bringing the grace of God into the world, changing the dynamics of our experience of life uh, through, you know, salvation. And then Mary herself experiences that salvation from Jesus, even as she gives birth to Jesus. Um, so the salvific work of Jesus is applied to Mary kind of retroactively, even before she delivers Jesus in, in, in um, you know, in, in the birth. Um, so therefore, she experiences no pain because that 
that curse has been removed. Huh. Well, that I mean, would it's be a fascinating theological move. That'd be know, good for Mary because I know my wife was not <laughs> was not was not happy. Um, yeah, was not happy at all. The oceans roar in silence by your voice. The winds of doubt are forgotten to come out for you. Are strong. You are strong. So, well, I don't know how to say this. So, is there anywhere else, I guess, in, in this might not be a fair question. So, as I did a bit of research, and I did not know this before this this research, and and you allude briefly to it. So, Christ is apparently not the only quote unquote person or deity that's that's been born of a virgin. So, do you feel like that was co opted by the early church fathers as a way to to make sure there was well, there was due praise? Well, um, I. I you know the the church fathers had the two biblical gospels already, and so they didn't come up with the story. I mean, you know, Origen and Irenaeus and Augustine and so on. They already had the infancy narratives of Matthew and Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it's true that when you look at comparative religious texts from whether whether it's Egypt or you know ba- Babylon or um, the Greco-Roman um, mythologies, even stories about historical figures like Alexander the Great and uh, uh, Plato—you know—they all had uh, some kind of miraculous, supernatural conception of some sort or other. And um, you know, uh, Alexander the Great's mother supposedly was struck in the womb by a lightning bolt from Zeus, and you know, voila, there's Alexander (laughs) in the womb and, you know, all kinds of stories like that. So you do have to think about that and wonder what that means, what the implications of that are for how we read, you know, this genre, this, this, uh, these or the origin stories of Jesus. At one point I thought about putting something like that as the subtitle, um, you know, the origin of, Jesus, you know, the Son of God, um, because it is a, it's a powerful way of communicating the significance of an important life, yeah, a religious figure, and that's that's just what they did. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I, I, it, it makes a lot of sense that this amazing person, Jesus of Nazareth, who did all those wonderful things, said all those you know, great truths, died on a cross, was resurrected from the dead, that um, over time, as the stories about Jesus were circulated among the early Christian communities, they naturally would have developed a a story about his birth that would have been remarkable. Um, and that, you know, it's not like we, we look at that today from the way we, we emphasize um, facticity, factuality, history, kind of a straight reporting. Well, we have fake news and all that these days. Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, you know, we're not, yeah, we're (laughs) not a mythological society in that respect, but that's the way they did it back then. And so that story would have come about probably naturally, organically, as the Jesus, the stories about Jesus get told and retold. But it it came about later after the stories of his life and teachings and resurrection, his death and resurrection, it was a later edition. We don't have it in the Gospel of Mark, the earliest of the Gospels. We don't have it in Paul, Paul's letters, the earliest of the New Testament writings. And yeah. so it seems pretty clear that that's an addition to the story of Jesus that comes along to help uh, underscore his significance. Is there any, um, is there any historical evidence for uh, for Christ being born of a of a virgin, uh, being born of a virgin, or uh, pro- well, or I Mary guess... being a virgin, I, I probably said it incorrectly. Oh, right? Yeah. No, I, I don't think there's any any. Ev- I mean, the only evidence would be, you know, these gospel stories, and 
you can make arguments on either side of, well, you know, how, how did they get there and why are there some similarities between Matthew and Luke? Um, you know, Raymond Brown is probably the best source on these sorts of, of issues. And he goes through all of the, the arguments, the debates, the, the rationale for and against kind of thinking of, of these stories as historical. And ultimately he argues that it's inconclusive either way. Yeah. That you basically have to make a, you know, you have to make your own judgment. Of course. Um, I, I think the, for, for, um, and, and it's not like he says it's inconclusive equally. I think he just says that there's not an, uh, you know, open and shut, you know, case closed sort of thing that there's room to make, to have to make a judgment. Yeah. Um, I think that the bulk of the evidence leans toward the virgin birth stories as not being literal historical. Um, and so we have freedom to interpret them more through the grid of the ancient context in which they were written, which is more mythological the meaning being more theological. Sure. So you you alluded it to it a minute ago, and I think it hinges on what you just said. So you know, Mark and and John they don't even really mention Jesus until he's an adult and in his ministry, and and Paul, who most of the churches today govern. The, I think that's all they preach is Paul for the most part, um, and and <laughs> right. he didn't really talk about it. Um, so does I guess a. Uh, to use a, a, a Pauline term, a, a Christology or the, the crux of Christianity hinge on whether or not Mary's a virgin? Absolutely not, I would say. Um, in fact, you know, if you think of what Christ means, Christ means Messiah or, you know, the smeared one, the anointed one with oil. And to be the Messiah, Jesus had to have come from the line of uh, lineage of David, and how did how do you how would the lineage of David have gotten all the way to Jesus? It would have gotten there through Joseph, who was um, descended from the line of David, according to our genealogies that mm-hmm. we have. It wasn't Mary, um, and so if it, if the line biologically is descended through ultimately through Joseph to Jesus, how does that get there? if Joseph was not involved biologically in the conception. Um, so I think Paul, who really, you know, ha- has this high Christology, I think for Paul, the incarnation is really important, but also the Davidic origins of, uh, of Jesus's lineage. Um, I think he assumes a normal human conception by Joseph. Um, you know, Joseph and Mary, um, no, it's impossible to say for sure, but, um, what, um, what scripture would you base that assumption on? Um, well, I, I think for one, there's just the complete lack of reference to a virgin birth, uh, or to Mary by name as the mother, um, in, in, in any of Paul's writings. Um, but in, you know, Romans one, three, we have the, the, the seed of David, um, descended from David. That's one example. And there's another in Galatians and, um, a few other places that, uh, kind of trace Jesus back through as the, the Royal Messiah through this messianic line. Um, and so that's in my Bible chapter, a couple of texts there, Mm -hmm. but theologically speaking, the incarnation figures pretty prominently in Paul and the real crux of the argument of the book for me, um, and the real turning point for me was when I began to understand that if, if there, if Jesus was truly the incarnation of God, of, of the word, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity becomes flesh, becomes human in Jesus of Nazareth, then it really doesn't make a lot of sense from a contemporary standpoint that that, that the mechanism would be a virginal conception. Because Jesus had to be 
fully human, like you, like me. That's the point of the incarnation, right? And so to be fully human, how do you get to be fully human? You, you are conceived in the way that all humans are conceived. Uh, that's what makes us human, that we've got a male uh, biological father and we have a female biological mother. Mm-hmm. And the two come together. We know how that how that happens. I think most of your listeners do. <laughs> I, I would hope so. The sperm meets the egg, <laughs> yeah. you know, and there's fertilization um, and a life emerges. And so... To get a human, to have an incarnation seems to me, um, now, you could say, well, God can do whatever God wants. And, you know, I agree with that. I agree with that in principle. But, you know, just thinking about what what the incarnation means and what it, is, what it entails seems to me we almost have to choose, and really do have to choose in some respects, between a real incarnational Christology and holding on to a virgin birth or virginal conception yeah um and and so i i want to go with the incarnation what would you say to people that say well you know if you're going to throw out the virgin birth then we're we're just going to have to throw out the resurrection because i've gotten that um actually today uh from a friend of mine saying you know well, you, if you're going to throw out one, we got We can't trust anything. So why not just be atheist? Um, what would you? Yeah. Uh, which I don't. I don't know that I agree with, and I'm not 100. percent I just don't know. What would you say to that? Yeah. 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 It's. I think it's. It's uh, the most natural and probably the most important question that comes up when I talk about this book to believing Christians. Um, I, w- I have a couple of responses to that. And one is that, you know, this is a slippery slope argument. All right. If you, once you start down that slope, you know, you know, where are you going to end up? You're going to be in the pit of hell. <laughs> you're <laughs> right. you're, you're, you're going to lose all of your beliefs. Uh, I, my first argument is that really we're probably all already on a slippery slope. If you look at various ways we interpret parts of scripture not all of that is probably literally. We don't apply it all literally. Most women don't wear head coverings in church, for example. Yeah. A lot of us probably, a lot of us, and probably many of your listeners for sure, I would guess, don't take a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, you know, and read and understand the emergence of the universe as having taken place in six 24-hour days. So we've kind of already are doing that sort of thing. Um, now, this is asking a lot of people perhaps to, because this is getting close to Jesus. Mm, you know, yeah. It is, it's about yeah. Jesus. So um, that there, there's a more anxiety probably that's triggered around letting go of that. that so but that's my first response is we're already on a slippery slope. My second response is that there's a, a difference between between the, the the incarnation and the resurrection that I think is significant about my argument in particular, which is that the the to to argue that we should or could leave behind a literal understanding of the virgin birth on the basis of a theology of the incarnation is to say that Jesus um, in the incarnation experiences human life in the same way that we do, that it's consistent with the incarnation, incarnational theology for Jesus to have been conceived in a human way. So I'm not, but the primary thrust of my argument is not a demythologizing. It's not on the basis of science alone or history alone. So when you get to the resurrection, I don't think that there's any contradiction or conflict with the notion of the incarnation and the resurrection stories. Because in the resurrection, Jesus becomes what human beings, all of us, may one day eventually become. That, that is a transformation into a resurrected body. Yeah. So there is no inherent conflict between 
the notion of a resurrection and the notion of the incarnate, the theology of the incarnation. That to me is the big distinguish, distinguisher between these two doctrines. And that's why I don't think leaving the virgin birth behind leads you automatically to leave the resurrection behind too. Yeah. So I have two more major questions and I've, and I've passed over big portions of the book on purpose. I want to make sure we don't, we don't break <laughs> it all down. Um, but I do have two sure. more questions and I'd like to ask the harder one first uh, and, and end with, I think hopefully a, a less tense one. So Mary obviously is young and I know tracing through my own genealogy, uh, I found many, if you go back too many generations of uh, husbands marrying the same wives, a lot of women being married at 14, having a baby, dying at 18, and you know, just a lot of that. So um, being that I'm the father of, of two girls, uh, I can't see how it would be appropriate if, 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 if now is the time that Christ came and my daughter was approached as a 12-year-old, of which she's currently five, so I've got some time, and that being okay. So I've had some, some, some feminist people ask me, you know, say that, that that just doesn't sit right, that it's, it, that it's being taken advantage of someone that probably doesn't know any better, uh, just psychologically mm-hmm. not knowing any better. So I was hoping, and, and you touch on it briefly in the book, but I was hoping you could, you could give it a little bit on that now. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge, it's an important, hugely important question. And that is, and it's one that as a society, as a culture, we're facing right now, we're dealing with the questions of consent and power differential and, and, you know, sexual relationships and so forth. Um, We obviously just had the kind of Alabama Senate, Senate election and Roy Moore, and you had somebody tweeting in defense of Roy Moore. Well, you know, Joseph was an older man and Mary was a teenager. So what's the big deal? He should lose his um, internet privileges. That was, that was horrible. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I think it's, it's absolutely, as I point out in the book, appropriate to raise the question of consent. One, because of Mary's likely young age. Now that's, this is what happened in the first century context of the Jewish world, that if you were marriageable, if, if you were, if if you were of age, so to speak, then you were marriageable, right? Mm-hmm. Lives were shorter and so on. Um, everything was kind of sped up. So there was that context that I think we have to keep in mind. At the same time, the story is such that it raises questions for us now, looking back. You know, the the messenger, the divine messenger, Gabriel, in, in one story, unnamed in another, comes to Mary and basically announces, proclaims um, that she will bear a child, that her body will be used by God. Um, and, you know, there's no question there. It's not, a, it's not a request, as I read it. It's an announcement. And I think that should, it should trouble us a bit. It should make us think a little bit about, um, about what was going on there, the meaning of that how we read that story today, um, what that communicates to young girls, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we, we need to understand, first of all, it was a different time, a different context. And uh, second of all, this is another reason why deconstructing the text, the story is really important. Did it really happen this way? Um, we don't know. What if it happened in a very different, a different way? Um, than the story communicates. And I, I think that that helps us, helps people to kind of destabilize the text in a way that opens us up to more liberative possibilities. You know, perhaps instead of emphasizing the the passive acquiescence of Mary to the divine figure to use her body uh, for God's purposes, we emphasize instead the Mary of the Magnificat, who proclaims that God her wonder that God has chosen her to be a part of the process of the historical and cultural and political and economic redemption of her people. You know, that that's a different take and one that often gets overlooked with the Mary, did you know, kind of, yeah. kind of theology. My, my worship pastor and I 
we go back and forth on that song. I, I lead the worship at my church, and I'm all the time. So I'm like, I can't, oh. I can't sing this song. They, if, if if they told her this is a big deal, of course she knew. Come on now. But and he's like, yeah. well, we're singing yeah. it anyway. I'm like, I can't, I can't sing this song. <laughs> um, how, yeah. how, how does so you'll have people that say, you know, that's fine, we can entertain this, but then that negates all of the prophecies in, say, Isaiah or some of the other prophecies that say, you know, Christ had to come from a virgin or Christ had to come from here. So what would be an answer to those that say, to that prophecy question? Yeah, well, biblical prophecy is really, this is one thing I actually did learn in seminary. (laughs) Biblical (laughs) prophecy is really mainly not foretelling the future, but foretelling kind of God's coming judgment. You know, if, if you people don't shape up and change your ways, um, God's going to unleash a, a torrent of of uh, godly discipline on you through the Assyrians or Babylonians or whatever. The Isaiah seven fourteen passage that you are thinking of that Matthew then takes up and uses is actually a Greek translation of the original Hebrew um, text. The original Hebrew text doesn't have the word virgin in it. It and it didn't certainly didn't have the birth of Jesus in uh, you know foretold in mind. Um, it it had its own more immediate context in mind and would have been fulfilled long before Jesus came onto the scene. So the the word there that was then translated virgin in the Greek is originally young woman or young maiden, and it doesn't have the same connotation or the same reference point. So Matthew was doing some creative utilizing, which biblical writers often did. You know, they would use texts from the Hebrew Bible, incorporate them into their own kind of theological, for their own theological purposes, Mm -hmm. and it was natural and right to do that for them. But then we, you know, when we read that now, we understand that that's what was going on, that that this wasn't actually a a specific foretelling. The other thing, though, I would quickly add is that, you know, I, I am not arguing, and I don't argue that, that, that Jesus was not born in in this context, and that that nothing about the infancy narratives are historical. What I try to point out is that there's probably a middle ground between sort of complete literal facticity and um, and, and you know mythological elements. Somewhere in between is the truth. You know that. Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary were the parents probably, um, biologically. Jesus probably then was born or spent some time in Bethlehem. Um, So, you know, who knows what the actual historical events are, but uh, I I try to just set us free to um, have a more flexible manger scene, which we do anyway because we're already picking and choosing between uh, events and stories in Matthew and in Luke, which don't sync up perfectly. They don't match up. So we have to already do that work of picking and choosing our our infancy narrative, our manger scene. Um, yeah. And I'm just suggesting we may need to do more of that than yeah. we've already done. Yeah. And I think churches today and, and movies today, my, my family and I just went to see The Star. I don't know if you've seen it. It, it navigates in between the two, and I, I didn't really realize it until recently, like it, it tells the story from the point of view of, of, of the donkey, uh, which is cute <laughs> for a kid's movie. And it, it sticks fairly right. close, but it yeah. navigates like it's one huge story and it takes pieces of this and pieces of that and puts it all together, yeah. which sure. is, is, I guess it's fine. It's, it's intended for a, for, for a, a much younger audience. So, um, I would like to be uh, respectful of the rest of your afternoon. So before we go, um, what, uh, the name of the book that's come that, right now, where, uh, for a complicated pregnancy, where would we direct people to get that? And then as well, your next book that you referenced at the beginning, 
um, kind of go over that a little bit and, and when we can expect that and how we can find you and, and communicate with you going forward. Yeah, the book Complicated Pregnancy is available on Amazon. So you just put in the title and my name and it'll come right up. That's the best way to buy it, or at least it's the, the cheapest way to get it. If um, you know, They always have a sale going on. You can also get it through the directly through the publisher, Fortress Press. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll pay full full retail there. Um, but uh, but yeah, those are the two. And then my previous book, if anyone's interested in Kierkegaard and postmodernism and all that, it's called Emerging Prophet, and it's also available on Amazon, or you can find both under my author page there at Amazon. Um, the commentary will be out not until next fall, so that'll. I'm sure be, uh, I mean, Amazon as well. And that's, that's on Matthew, being you said, right? And, yeah, it's on Matthew. Okay. And um, and then I'm blo- I am blog a little bit still, so I'm at Unsystematic Theology on Pathios. So you can just Google that and and uh, contact me through email as well. Um, KyleARoberts at gmail.com if you have questions and be happy to respond. Fantastic. Well, I will say... Like I, like I referenced at the beginning, this is a big topic, and I was—I'm <laughs> still a little nervous about it. Um, but I—I am—it uh, is—it's worth discussing. It's worth—it's worth deconstructing and, and thinking about. So, um, again, sure. thank you for your time. I've, I've greatly enjoyed it. Thank you, Seth, for having me on. It was fun to talk about. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I would encourage, I would ask for your feedback. Please email us at church at gmail.com. Interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, your feedback only helps to make the show better. If you have liked in any way or if you engaged in any way with any of the, the podcast episodes that you've heard so far, please consider going to our Patreon page. You can find that at church.com. There's a big, huge button up there. Your donations help so much. You are listening to the executive producer, editor, scheduler, emailer, uh, and I will continue to do this podcast as long as I'm able. I greatly enjoy it, and your help will ensure that we can continue to have these open, honest conversations that we're afraid to have in church. I was talking with people that are educated about those topics, so please consider that. Like us on Facebook. Uh, there is a Facebook group uh, that you can interact with and have conversations with other people that listen like yourselves. It is a fantastic group. So look forward to talking with you there, and we will see you in the next episode. <laughs>